Hi guys, Pastor Matt here. I know that pornography is not an easy topic to talk about, but we've got to say something. Uh, it is a silent killer. In 20-something years of pastoral ministry at the village, I've seen it destroy families, marriages. Uh, I've seen it hold back the potential of men and women because of shame. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life or you've seen it in the life of another. So what I want to do is I want to give you 30 free days uh, of Covenant Eyes. And, and the best way to go about doing that is go to covenanteyes.com and, and use OVERCOMERS in all caps. And that's 30 days free for you to test drive what I think is the most effective to hinder access to pornography and come alongside uh, a man or woman struggling with this in a way that you can feel supported and encouraged in the fight. Again, you can go to covenanteyes.com, all caps, overcomers, or you can just click the link in the show notes. Hey guys, Pastor Matt here. For close to 30 years now, I have had the privilege of preaching and teaching God's Word in all sorts of different locations, in front of different crowds, and it's been one of the great joys of my life to study the Word of God and try to mine it for all that's there. Um, that used to involve, you know, having 20 books open on a big table with a spiral notebook and and, and a thousand other little helps with a BDAG. And um, about 15 years ago, that began to change for me as I began to migrate over from everything being paper to using Logos Bible Study software. Uh, I, I learned what it would take me two hours to do uh, on in, in books and paper. I could I could handle in, in sometimes seconds. So if you're a student of God's Word, whether you're a preacher or not, I cannot commend Logos to you more fervently. It, it has been a lifesaver uh, in the ministry for me as I preach week in and week out, sometimes more than once a week. Uh, I feel um, prepared and, and capable because of the ease and the speed at which Logos brings to the scriptures. If you're interested in that, you can go to logos.com backslash overcomers. There's a discount waiting for you there. And, and I wanna encourage you, this can take your Bible study to a whole new level. As a kid, the death of my parents was what I feared the most. And I, you know, they, they were older and my mom wasn't well, so I thought about it all the time. I thought I would sit on our front porch and I would like strategize around who who should die first financially. Yeah. <laughs> I mean my things gosh. that it's like and it wasn't even, I mean, there's emotion behind it, but it was so like it was how and who can I take care of? And that was, I mean, those are the things I was thinking about in childhood. Welcome back to The Overcomers. I am here with, man, one of my oldest friends. Uh, I met uh, Anne Lincoln Hollenbaugh in 1999 
in Abilene, Texas. And so she's got, a, uh, I think, a profound story of, like, like when I think about what I wanted to share um, in this podcast, in this series of interviews, like Ann Lincoln embodies for me an, an overcomer, like having known her for close to 25 years, she just, it's been wave after wave after wave, and she just keeps getting up. And, and she gets up with a delight in Jesus before, during, after. It's just she's been marked by the Holy Spirit. And so it, it's a lot of fun to have Ann Lincoln with me. So, hey, welcome to The Overcomers. Thanks, Matt. I'm happy to be here. So I meet Ann Lincoln in Abilene. I am the college minister at Beltway Park. I am preaching at a ecumenical Bible study called Grace. I don't remember if it was Tuesday night or Thursday night uh, when you got there in 99. Was it 99? Fall of 99, freshman year. Goodness sakes. And so Ann comes in, Ann Lincoln comes in. She's um, a newer Christian. She's bright-eyed. She's a force. She's marked (laughs) by a a lot of gladness and thousands and thousands of questions. So many questions. So many questions Mm -hmm. about... I mean, thinking deeply about God very early on. And so why don't, like, I knew that was, like, that's new. That was a, like, you, you, everything about you came across as an excited newborn Christian Mm. who wanted to know everything Mm -hmm. you could know about God. You wanted to know the why and the what and the how. And and I loved that about you because I was wired a bit that way, especially right after conversion. I was like, I need to know how this works. Yeah. Well, I came to faith um, at 14. But without a lot of discipleship, I had some exposure to the church as a young child and always loved those experiences. They were so formative. I have strong memories of being quite small in Sunday school and in church, but largely the rhythms within our family were Christmas Eve and Easter. Okay. I mean, that's That was really my exposure. It was a Methodist church, so some of the more high church traditions, which I really loved. That was the foundation of my faith. I remember learning the Lord's Prayer. I remember having a children's Bible, and I just experienced the grace of God even before I was born again, softening my heart toward the things of Him. In junior high, my best friend invited me to go to this church camp, and— It's always church camp. (laughs) Praise God. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm not dogging it. Let's do Uh, it. My experience experience was quite good, and um, but it was a Church of Christ camp, so we were singing every night and in the middle of the day. Acapella. It was acapella, and it was awesome. Beautiful. Um, I just didn't know anything. I didn't know— anything about the scriptures. I did not know anything about, you know, the hidden rules of any tradition, any experience. And I was really just nervous, apprehensive, unsure, walking into this new environment that is, I mean, now I love being outside. I love the outdoors, but this was just such a setup for all of my insecurities. And yet, um, I, I, I met the Lord, and He met me more, you know, um, more accurately. We met each other, and I just wasn't the same. And I was hungry and thirsty at the beginning. God's just—He's put questions in me. He's put curiosity and inquisitive nature in the fiber of my being, and I love that. I know um, not everybody— asks as many questions or has as much patience for the number of questions that come. But there is wonder and beauty in the world that He has made, and He has caused us to long to know Him. And we know Him by inquiring and listening and learning. And I'm sort of drifting, but 
Yes, I came to faith. God saved me at 14, and I really could not have—I could not have told you anything about anything. And a friend once said, you know, I had belief before I had understanding, and that just clicked for me. I I can say the same thing. And we want both. We want to see both formed, obviously, in disciples, and want people to have a right knowledge of God. But He saved me, and so whatever was true— I wanted to know it, and my heart was open to believe and yet to ask and to wrestle and to lay hold of it in my own way. And so 14, I come to faith. I understand in some measure that connection to a church is important, but that's just not what my reality was. And so returning to this place uh, one week or two weeks out of this summer was where I was formed. That was the primary source of my discipleship. And was how I ended up in Abilene, Texas, because the men and women who were serving as counselors at this camp during the summer were college students who were connected to universities that were uh, associated with the Churches of Christ. Abilene Christian University was one of those, is still one of those. And in my naivete, I thought, well, these men and women are what I know as examples of what it is to follow Jesus. I didn't actually know enough to know what would Jesus do. I wasn't sure, but I could look to their example, and that was more concrete to me. And so I thought, if I want to continue to grow, and if what I've experienced here has been so transformational in in every way, then where they go to college must be just like camp. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so here's what I'll do. I will choose an extremely expensive private Christian university. <laughs> I'm gonna go to I'm gonna go to youth camp for four years or five. Yeah. I mean, I never put it that way, but I think yeah. But for me, it was just the most natural. This is what makes sense. Yeah. This is sort of all I know of their world, obviously. And so great. That's where they are. That's where I want to be. And even though it was naive. Um, we can laugh now in God's incredible providence. Oh um, he set my heart and he set my feet and he uh, created a way for something that truly was so out of reach and maybe impossible to become my reality and stay my reality yeah. through a lot of uncertainty. So yes, that's how I ended up uh, in Abilene, Texas in the fall of 1999, wide-eyed. Wide-eyed. Freshman. And just ready to take it all in, and you, and you did, which was like like I said to if you know Anne Lincoln, you're listening to this and you know her, um, you you know the thing that we're laughing about is the the volume of questions that that she asks. Well, I don't I don't know if I was teaching through like doctrines of grace or something in our little college Sunday school class. I know for certain I wasn't doing that at Grace. It was uh-huh. more kind of broad evangelical, but at, at Beltway, I think I don't know if that's what I was teaching through. But I just remember. It, every Sunday, you you waiting to some. I need some clarity around this, sure. or I need some clarity around sure. that. And um, I have always loved like your, and and you're right. Not everybody can appreciate it. Some people see questions as challenges, but I I never felt that from you. I just felt like wonder and help me understand how this works. Right. And um and so I I loved those days with you. And and then there were like significant challenges, like but you know you couldn't really afford to go to ACU. So right. I remember oftentimes oh like my gosh. praying like oh, oh my gosh, gosh we need we need this to come through. Yes. And I might not be back next semester. Right. And uh, oh my gosh, okay, let's get back right. to praying. Oh and, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now we're Christian. We're in Abilene. We're really devouring what it means to know Jesus and know him rightly and to follow him in a way that pleases him and 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 yet in the background 
uh, there's a lot of other stuff going mm-hmm. on. A lot of stuff that just if you met Ann Lincoln on the surface, you, you just have no idea. She would just look like someone who was hungry to deepen her walk with the Lord, uh, zealous to chase after him. You, you never, I, I will say, you know, having known you again this long, I, I never felt like you played the part or you like mm-hmm. tried to be happy when you weren't or you, so there was an honesty about you, but there was a lot going on behind the scenes yeah. back home. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on financially. Mm-hmm. I, I will, and man, I wish this was a video podcast so I could show a picture of the car that you drove, which is still, <laughs> she. if you've ever seen- It was amazing. If you've ever seen um, National Lampoon's Vacation, if you haven't <laughs> seen it, please, please don't go see it now. But if you've seen it, that station wagon, if you made it a lot worse, powder blue <laughs> and twice the size- that's what Ann Lincoln drove. And for years, like post-college, even when you came on staff yeah. here, you drove that. Oh, my I, gosh. It was, that car was amazing. It, it was, was a 1986 Grand Marquis station wagon. It was so giant. It had eight cylinders. It was, I mean, it was amazing. Um, it, it was the size of my first apartment. <laughs> That's how big that car was. I can't believe you could park it. Anyway, so let's we could have fun, but let's let's keep talking about. Yeah. So there's all these pressures right, going right. on. Talk, talk a little about how those two are colliding. Yeah, definitely. Young Christian, mm-hmm. really hungry to know him, trying to navigate these things that are really behind the scenes for most right. people who knew you and were walking with right. you at the time. Well, you know what you were experiencing that you didn't necessarily know at the time that you can probably name now. What I was experiencing that I couldn't have named then in the way that I can name now is, you know, 18, I'm coming into this new environment, but it really was a new world. And what I was trying to do was figure out how do I make sense of the world? How do I make sense of the world that I have just emerged from that was really filled with so much harm? And, you know, I I moved, uh, you know, into my college life really having come out of, I mean, just a a chaotic, abusive home um, in in sort of every way that you can imagine. There was such a lack of safety. And I was born to parents who loved me very much, who wanted me very much. I was a gift in their older years. So I was— dearly loved, but I was born to two human beings who can only be broken, but with very particular measures of brokenness, especially in my father, that went unaddressed and unhealed. And when that happens, it just multiplies. And that was what formed my my upbringing. I mean, there there were lots of things they were both bringing in, lots of hurts and losses, which is, that's the only thing that you can do in marriage. And then some significant life stressors that took place as I was being born, truly the beginning of my life, as beautiful as it was, as wanted as I was, there was a lot of hardship in many directions, medically for my mother and circumstantially for my dad. And so really my world um, was filled with with chaos that just only increased as the pressure comes. I mean, you do many things in pressure. Um, some of those can be healthy and some of those you just reach for control in ways that you, the ways that you know, the strategies that you have. And um, those strategies were not good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a home 
um, of domestic violence. I grew up in a home of financial instability. I grew up in a home where there was a lot of hiding and shame and fear and a lot of lack. Um, that That's just what I grew up in. And, and I grew up as an only child, so I didn't have like a buddy or an ally. Yeah. I remember in my younger years where these little seeds of the gospel, even though I didn't have that word, I just knew God was real and I knew he was father and I talked to him all the time. And that was before I had a theology of prayer, sure. or, but I just did. I knew he was there and I knew he could help. And I guess I believed he would. I didn't hesitate to talk all the time to him um, and lay my heart before him. So as I was um, exposed to the knowledge of who he was, it's like, as much as you can give me, I will take. Yeah. You you know this God. You know his word. I mean, I had this revised standard version Bible that my mom had given me that was filled with vows and brethren. And I mean, just— you know, even you know, post fourteen, I've come to faith, and I'm like trying to read the scriptures on my own, <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm trying to understand them. And by God's grace, by the Spirit, there is sufficiency, and there was revelation, and also there is a reason we're given to the people of God, and there are those who, by God's Spirit, are gifted to teach and to encourage and yeah. to explain because that's how we grow. He wants us to have right understanding and knowledge um, that connects with belief. And so that's where coming into an environment where I was surrounded by Christians who were more mature, I was surrounded by teachers. I was acquainted with the church for really the first time. Yeah. Oh man, yeah, I was, um, yeah, I was hungry. I was eager. I was wide-eyed. I wanted to know, but I also needed stability. I needed some sort of anchor point to hold me in this, in the midst of everything that I had experienced, um, and the chaos that I really had normalized or learned how to survive. Yeah. It's really that. I learned how to survive, and I I knew that there was more, even though I couldn't have named it in that way, partly because I was seeing other people and other Christians live in a different kind of way. And so there there was this, this desperation probably um, for life, yeah. knowing it was there and not knowing how to find it without um, the help and counsel of others. So how is it, was there... As you're kind of growing in this, I, I would. It sounds like the word I would use is disorientation, mm. where you're coming out of this world yeah. that's the only world you ever know. Right, but it was a good disorientation, yeah. actually. But and now you're in this place that I mean, Abilene is. If if people are listening, there are three Christian colleges mm-hmm. in Abilene: a Church of Christ one, a Baptist one, and a a Methodist one. Mm-hmm. So Hardin Simmons, ACU, Abilene Christian, and then McMurray. And so it is a. It, it is a strange religious bubble yeah. filled with a lot of really good people um, and, and some oddities. I mean, there's just some oddities in Abilene. I, I mean, I can remember, like, it, Abilene for me was the first time I, I realized, oh, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have enemies in life. I mean, I didn't know that till I got to Abilene. And, and, not, and, and because I've either I've got a freedom that a person doesn't or that I'm teaching something that they disagree with, but it was my first little— Oh man, people really dislike me, and I'm I'm I still don't 
I've never experienced that before. Yeah. And and then yeah, so so Abilene like was a real formative time for me. I had to learn some things in preparation for where the Lord was taking me in Abilene. But I, I would love to hear how that disorientation. You're coming out of this world. You're in this new one. You're trying to walk with the Lord. Were there were there cracks and fissures that started to form in this space as you were dealing with this? Is what I'm coming out of. This is what I see, and it looks kind of normal, um, homogenous kind of religion in mm-hmm. Abilene. And, and was there talk about the disorientation maybe yeah. of of that season? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a really that's really interesting to reflect on. I think you know part of the disorientation that was I name it as good because it was seeing something better. It was seeing my life in contrast to something that was more true, maybe. Yeah. And what I what I was realizing was, oh my gosh, I'm a mess. Yeah. And it's it's when you stop having to brace and survive in the day to day that you can look down when there's a measure of safety and see, oh, like holy hell, I'm shot through. Yeah. That's really how I felt. And so, seeing that, trying to understand um, what what to do, knowing, oh my gosh, like this can't be good. I do need help. But also realizing I'm actually so scared of people. That's what I was so mindful of. And there was, you know, there was this ambivalence to, I want to be experiencing all of the goodness that's available. And yet I am very afraid of it. Yeah, And that's still something that I that's, I still wrestle with that, that yeah. sense of ambivalence. So for example, I remember at Beltway Park, every Wednesday, there was dinner and prayer. Yep. I loved that. It was so great. I was too scared to go to dinner. I went like in four years. And you missed some of the best Mexican pylon. I, I, I'm sure I did. <laughs> Frito I pies, many casseroles. Things. Man, but I, I can see it in my mind. I loved that place, that sweet fellowship hall. Um, I went every Wednesday to prayer. Yeah. Every single Wednesday. Um, but it was very vulnerable to think about walking into this fellowship hall filled with people who love the Lord and love me. And yet there was just, it was too much for me. Yeah. I, I couldn't quite do that. I needed, I just needed more more safety to do that. So that's an example of there's all of this beauty and life and connection that I'm very eager to experience. And yet there are a number of barriers that I'm encountering and seeing and naming for the first time. And I, I look back on that with a ton of grace and compassion for myself and smile in deep love because, man, I was doing the best I could, and I was doing a lot in the midst of that. So the experiences that you're referencing around some of the, the polished nature and the, yeah, there I mean, there are a lot of Christians. There's a lot of Christian culture, but I just didn't see or experience that in the same way because that's— not what I had known in any regard. Okay. So, you know, and I I remember after you took the pastorate here, you would talk a little bit, you know, you would jab um, around some of those highly Christianized contexts, which I think can be a breeding ground for things yeah. that are that are not healthy and good. And sort of like there could be a duo every night. And, and I'm like, I needed that actually. Yeah. And not everybody was experiencing health. There was not light in every place that I experienced light. I'm very aware of that. But from where I was coming from, 
I was a sponge. And so every place that God's people were meeting, where God's word was opened, where people were singing, I was healing. I was learning and I was growing. So I just didn't see and, and wasn't quite caught up in all of that. If anything, what was so interesting for me to experience, because I was not coming from a more traditional background and the limited background that I had 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 been more progressive. Yeah. I mean, in the church I was growing up in, even if it was Christmas Eve and Easter, there was a there was a female minister who had public ministry. Yeah. That was normative to me. From the time I was very small, even though it wasn't a preaching ministry, there was public ministry. So that was normative and good and beautiful and healthy. And I enter a very conservative Church of Christ context, which I praise God for everything that I've experienced. There are beautiful things and hard things in every tradition. So it's not to single that out in particular, but there were very decided um positions on many things, including what was and wasn't appropriate for women to do. And because I just didn't have any context for that, I did not have much patience for. And a lot um, of questions. I had a lot of questions and (laughs) not a lot of patience, not even within our church context, mostly within, you know, on my university campus, some of those, you know, places of dialogue. Um, So I do remember that and probably— I mean, I don't know what kind of HSOs I had as this very immature Christian with a lot of passion and probably, a, you know, um, I probably spoke strongly and clearly and decidedly uh, from the from the little knowledge that I had in ways that may have been hard to hold. But also, come on, guys, I would say like I was being greeted with highly gracious no. um, positions well, or postures at the, the same the time. The irony is, and I had the same experience at a different university, is that the questions that we were asking actually could be viewed as hostile, but really we're just trying to understand. Yeah, right. And so it wasn't, there were times it wasn't safe to ask the questions that were actually there to answer. So tell me about friends. Yeah. Like, like oh, you, you get to. there mm-hmm. and you, you do have this kind of aversion to like, Vulnerability feels dangerous. Is that a fair way to say it? Yeah, sure. And, and so, you're like, you're avoiding Frito Pie Night, <laughs> Mexican Pylon <laughs> Night at Beltway, but are you finding friends? Like, oh, yeah. good friends? Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. You know, I actually was just in uh, North Carolina, Asheville, North Carolina last week. My best friend lives there. And um, I met her my very first week of college. And there are a group of seven of us that are, are, um, we all found each other early on, and we are friends till the end of time. Some of my very best friends in all of life. I love these women, and God has ordained that our lives not just connect then, but stay connected. And the yes, for all of the things that I did avoid, there were so many things that God just didn't let me do and gave me amazing, like really abundant grace to just jump in and try new things. And I got scooped up by some of the best people in all of life. And we, I mean, we were just together a lot and did the dumb stuff that you ought to do in college and stayed up late and ate ramen at midnight and took road trips to Atlanta or wherever over three-day weekends. And yeah, I mean, really beautiful experiences of sisterhood and brotherhood within my college life, you know, on campus and 
things of that nature, but also within the life of the church. And all of the connection within college ministry was so significant. And But even from, you know, the earliest days, as, you know, bumpy and vulnerable as they were, there was strong connection within, you know, peer relationships, but also the intergenerational connection within the life of the church. Beltway did that so well. So well, was very significant. And so, yes, the relationships that were formed within every context of the Christian community. And again, that's something that served me so well is every place that I was stepping my foot within my life in Abilene was in the context of a Christian community, within the context of the family of God. And it was a long learning and will continue to be to experience this new family, this true family, this lasting family. And God just set my feet and my heart and my life within the midst of it from the beginning. Yeah, I loved watching it. I really did love watching it. And then there were still... uh... You were still kind of connected back home, though, yeah. mm-hmm. in in ways where you. It seemed to me at the time that you were, and it was the first hint I got that that there were some things under the surface going on where you, you, you in question and in prayer and in conversations, specifically about stuff back home. There was a, there was a sense that like you were the mom. Mm trying to take care specifically of your dad. You, yeah. you, you would talk much more about your dad back right. then mm-hmm. than, than mom. But I, I remember this intensity that I, that I, I couldn't, I couldn't have understood at the time right. um, around how to care for your dad and how to support your dad and how to come along. So fit that into the story now, because one, I, I think that like people more than likely most people listen to this don't know you but it's clear just if you're listening to it like it's clear that Ann Lincoln has the gift of faith like she just turns her face to Jesus i mean she's a little kid doesn't even know who's out there talking to him all the time so it it's just been something that god's laid on her she's um she's optimistic with a lot of questions and she just repeatedly goes back to, to Jesus through wave after wave of disappointment and hardship and 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 this was a season where everything she's describing like I'm I'm just watching like this this is a woman hungry for anything she can get around or be around concerning Jesus and and yet in quieter moments like in my office in the sanctuary or th- there was this deep pain and longing for the stuff that was going back going on back home. So so fit that into this vibrant healing first year with this kind of um I don't know if calling it an anchor is fair. Certainly there was a weight uh underneath all this kind of optimistic questioning growth and gladness in Jesus. Mm-hmm. It it would come out of you this concern or yeah. care for that was abnormal for a college student in Abilene. Like Mm -hmm. most college kids weren't talking to me about their worry for their parents or their worry for their dad and needing to get there because you don't know how they'll be if you don't get there. So talk a little bit about how that weaves into this story. Mm. I mean, I was carrying so much concern and that had been the case from the time I was really quite young. Um, I had... Yes, I had assumed a role in my family. I both assumed it and it was put on me. 
um, of, of carrying undue responsibility, just so disproportionate to my age, to my role in my family as a child. And yet I stepped in to take on very adult um, responsibilities from the time that, that I was small. And some of that was because I was very aware of the instability in both of my parents. When I, you know, I'd mentioned there's some, you know, hardship, so mild hardship. I mean, there were just, there was deep crisis at my birth. My mom almost died, which set the trajectory for some long-term chronic illness. And again, my, I, I know less about what was happening in the life of my father, but there was, there was a measure of, of crisis that set the trajectory for his life, just a, a loss, um, th- again, that, that seemed to mark him and break him in some ways, that when I look at the whole of his life and who he was before I was born— he was a very different man and lived a very different life. And and yet the the man that I knew as my father was was not marked by the same kind of, I mean, he always had a gravitas about him uh, and, a, and a charm and a charisma, but there was just a deep brokenness and great fear that drove him and great fear that fueled um, instability and control and anger and rage and violence, honestly. So I was situated in this home where I had this chronically ill mother and this dad who could just lose it, the drop of a hat, who was managing a lot of instability. And then I'm just this little kid who's compliant and gets good grades and gets praised for being good, doing good. So I learned how to be good and to do good. But I was shouldering and managing just so much. <laughs> I mean, I'm just living and surviving um, in a world that I know is different than all of my friends. And so that shaped me and formed me in many ways. And so as a, you know, as a, as a teenager, as a young woman, and then as an 18-year-old freshman in college, 19-year-old coming into, yes, the life of the church and college and your office, I just was holding the reality that I left that was still there of two parents who were older, much older, and who um, were just existing in a lot of instability. And because I was not there and in many ways had seemingly held some things in the world together, I just didn't know it was going to happen. I didn't know if my mom was going to be okay. I didn't know if my mom was going to be safe. I mean, the things that I did to care for her and really to manage our home, I wasn't there doing that anymore. And I just, I didn't know what was going to happen. And I didn't know how I would handle or manage what I expected would happen in my absence. I had such a misplaced emotional responsibility for both of my parents. I mean, they lived separate lives in one home. Um, We did not eat meals together. We did not celebrate holidays together. I would legitimately open presents with one parent on Christmas, and then I would go to where the other parent was in the home and open presents with them. Like our lives were um, apart, and I was in the middle. I was the go-between in ways that just are not meant for a child or not meant for a teenager. And so as a young woman, I was asking very big questions and carrying very big concern without really um, a strong sense of how honest I could be about it. Yeah. And, um, you know, for someone like you, who's in a position of, you know, pastoral care and encouragement and instruction, I imagine it was interesting um, to listen and try to read between the lines and not press too much. 
But I didn't know how to tell the truth about what was happening, and I wouldn't know that for a very long time. So, you know, that's what was sitting uh, in your office and in the sanctuary and in lecture halls and in chapel and in my dorm room. One of the great themes of the New Testament is this idea of accountability, that you and I would be shield to shield with other brothers and sisters who encourage us, strengthen us, call us to holiness, and support and help us through rebuke and correction when necessary. And and I, I think a great tool for accountability, specifically around uh, sexual purity, uh, around pornography and those things, is the Victory app by Covenant Eyes. Uh, The Victory app has all sorts of features uh, that will be super helpful in your battle for purity, whether you you want help stopping looking at pornography or if you don't ever want to start. Once the Victory app is uploaded to your phone, it's working in the background with kind of cutting edge technology. They've got some AI features that are involved. And, and it's not just like making sure you're not seeing the things on the screen. It, it is uh, looping in allies to support and help you. It, it is uh, recovery material. It lets you get underneath the compulsion towards pornography. It is ongoing chat and support in a moment where you feel weak and aren't quite sure who to call in or who to ask uh, for help in the struggle. Um, and, and here's what I would love to do. I so want you to walk in the victory uh, of sexual purity um, that, man, I'm, I'm offering through the Overcomers 30 days free on this Victory app. And so if you go to covenanteyes.com and, and then use Overcomers in all caps, it's 30 days free test drive of the Victory app that I think will strengthen your spine in your fight against sexual temptation. Like I said, it was a, you were a unique, like if I think about that season of my life, you were one of the more unique college students Mm -hmm. in our ministry in that there was this simultaneous bright-eyed delight in the things of Jesus and 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 not skepticism not just like I want it all Wh- whatever he has I want it not like but I need help me understand this and yeah. what about this and how would this work if this is true and and then this real heavy concern I, I don't know how else to talk about it other yeah. than this heavy concern for for your mom and dad and it wasn't Again, it was such an abnormal conversation to have with a college kid in that season of our lives. It was lust. It was, you know, um, debt. As funny as that sounds, there was a lot of, I got a credit card my parents don't know, and I owe three grand, and what do I do? You know, the, and the, like to to have someone who is obviously, obviously a leader, obviously an enjoyer and lover of Jesus, obviously um, headed towards some some real genuine ministry to both her peers and to others have this kind of outlying, I don't know what to do about my folks. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, you shouldn't have to do anything about your folks. And then to try to read between the lines. And then I, I just want to, even as we're talking about overcoming, like I just want to commend that, like even even as we're telling the story, you you 
you really are in this place because that's this is what we're trying to tell. Like it, there's this joy and trust in Jesus, and there's this deep concern stemming from hurt that you mm-hmm. couldn't name or understand right. at the time. Right. And and yet they're all like all three of those are dancing together in right. the same person. And there was so much guilt because I was happy, <laughs> and I was I was out. Um. And I felt relief, and I felt able to experience safety, I guess. I mean, I was in a safe place. I was not in a circumstance and in a home where harm was happening. Um, my ability to feel safe, um, you know, that's been a work in progress. But I I was in a place that was not only not chaotic um, and unstable and harmful, I was in a place that was really good and I was experiencing really good stuff and I was having a blast. Come on. And I was, yeah, it was growing and, and yet I knew that at home, this hellscape was still a hellscape and I felt responsible and I felt guilty because I wasn't there and I didn't want to be there. And I remember, oh my gosh, you know, going home for Christmas break or the summer, I just dreaded it. And it was like taking the biggest, deepest breath that I could. Um, Like I wasn't going to be able to come up from, you know, underwater for that whole month or that whole summer. So yeah, there was reprieve. That's part of what it's part of the joy <laughs> that was being experienced. And that's okay. That's right, actually. Yeah, and is. yet there was this, yes, this mixture, the stance of legitimate concern. What's my responsibility? Also, I'm like responsible for myself, my whole self in every way. That's a lot too, just to manage, much less thinking about the impact and implications for, you know, your parents. So yeah, that role reversal, parentification that happens in dysfunctional homes, it really messes with you. Yeah. And it's, uh, so yeah, that that distortion of, in some ways, I knew it wasn't normal. And in other ways, like, not everybody thinking about this. Does it, not everybody need to, you know, like, not everybody has all these questions. <laughs> I still think about that. I'm like, I guess I ask a lot of questions. I just have the questions that I have. I just want to know. But yeah, there is a sense of when you're around other people, then you begin to realize even more so, oh, my experience is so different. And just knowing that it's different, having it named as different, and man, that it ought not be that way, didn't change the fact that it was. Yeah. That was happening. I did feel responsible. It was a part of my world. And as a Christian growing, trying to understand and discern what is my actual responsibility in the eyes of God. And according to the instruction of God, which as I grew into adulthood became, you know, those are harder questions, more appropriate questions for an adult as opposed to an 18-year-old, young adult. So, Yes, that yeah, that sense of yeah, dance and guilt and concern and confusion and relief and that really intensified. Talk about when my questions started to you know peak from a theological perspective. Uh, my sophomore year, when my mom's health was really declining, there had been man. My sophomore year, um, I remember in the fall so vividly. It was in September. There had been a very like significant. It felt miraculous um, provision for me to stay at school that year, which, um, you know, you alluded to earlier. They're really, I mean, 
we could sit and talk for a long time about just how God provided for me to have a college education, to stay in this place that was um, the context for healing and life and connection to the church family, just semester by semester, semesterly bread, semesterly bread, semesterly <laughs> bread. Even if that bread was a mistake in the registrar's office or whoever the billing was. <laughs> we'll like, take it. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, my sophomore year, I moved in for, you know, welcome week to to serve, not knowing if I was going to stay. I hadn't registered for classes. Anyway, so God had provided. My faith was stoked. And I remember going to Logston's Chapel on the Hardin-Simmons campus with all that gorgeous stained glass. Mm-hmm. And praying with a friend, and I was asking God for a miracle for my parents. And um, gosh, was it the next day? That could have been a Friday. I get a panicked phone call from my dad um, because the house was on fire. And he had gotten my mom out, um, but I packed a bag and raced home. And as, I mean, that was terrible. It was obviously like you don't want your home to burn down, but I knew this is a direct answer to my prayers because that home, that physical structure was just a place of, it was a place they could not leave, but needed to leave deeply and desperately. And there was a, I do not rejoice in the hardship and the harm that came to the actual physical structure of the home. And we didn't own it. It was a rental property. Um, So obviously none of that was good, but it really was a deliverance. What happened though in that event, which is so traumatic for your home to be on fire, for you to be in it. My mom had not been well for a very long time, been unable to care for herself in many respects. And she was also the victim of abuse. So there was the physiological, what I understood much later in adulthood, the physiological affliction in her body, but it was compounded by years of mistreatment and harm. And I mean, I just watched her shrivel up yeah. Um, and that was, I mean, talk about layers of loss, so many. And in that moment, that day of the fire, I it broke her mentally. And I think it, there probably was an onset, a triggering of maybe some dementia. She just wasn't the same. Yeah. She was gone in so many respects. And it was 10 months to the day later that she passed away. Yeah. And so what was happening in those 10 months— um, you know, obviously, like the degree of care that she needed, her inability. I mean, she she really did become like a child. And I here I was three hours away and the stress on my dad to care for her. I was home all the time. I was home most weekends. And just I was watching all of this suffering while you were teaching very clearly and directly about God's sovereignty. <laughs> um, I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile the two. Yeah. I was so I was wrestling and I would sit in college Bible study on Sunday morning before service and you would talk about, uh, you know, God's passion for his glory and and his sovereignty and all of these things that are true. And I was so glad for it in measure, but I was angry. I was so angry because I did not understand how God could be sovereign. I mean, that made sense to me. I was glad for it and good which I was glad for, but then how can he allow all of this suffering? I'm watching it. This is my mother. This is my life. This sucks. I mean, yeah. it was terrible. How is this your glory? I just, I could not fit it all together uh, emotionally, experientially, and I was so mad. I was so angry. And I remember being home one weekend 
and telling the Lord, if this is your glory, I don't want anything to do with it. I am not interested. And, you know, I didn't mean that ultimately, but I did mean it in the moment. You know, yeah. it's like I I needed better words for um I don't understand. I am angry. I am hurt. I am scared out of my mind. I need you. Where are you? What is this? Which is, that's, you know, that's the story of Scripture in so many moments, this secure orientation to the goodness of God, and then this deep disorientation that comes as life hits, as the waves hit. How long, O oh Lord, will How you forsake me? Long will you forsake me forever? Where are you? You've said this is who you are. I'm holding you to your word, but this doesn't look, this does not seem to match. And I'm going to, I need you. <laughs> I, I, I'm tempted to say, I'm going to need an explanation. I don't actually. What I need is you. Yeah. What I need is your presence. What I need is your power. What I need is you. And I don't feel you. I don't sense you. I don't recognize this place. And I don't want to be here without you. Where are you? So that's that deep disorientation. We all experience that. The Psalms are filled with it. And and then there is a surprising reorientation to the goodness of God. So yes, I mean, talk about the intersection of all of these questions and bright-eyedness. I remember that was a dark night of the soul. Yeah. And yet in God's kindness and grace, I could I did not want to be away from him. And he held those big questions and he used kind and faithful brothers and sisters to to hold those questions for me and with me. I mean, you and I had lots of hard talks yeah. that semester and and there was this, you know, surprising reorientation to the goodness of God. I remember so clearly. I was driving in my car through town. It was just before the end of the semester. And I experienced the presence of God. I remember a strong sense of His nearness. And again, it wasn't that all of my questions got answered. It was that I knew He was with me. Yeah. And six to eight weeks later... I remember being home on a weekend and I was living in Abilene that summer. I was working at a nonprofit and I'd, I'd you know, been home and trying to help, care, support, do whatever. And I remember leaving and, you know, my mom never wanted me to leave, which was always so hard. And, and I remember hugging her and for some reason I had a sense that it was going to be the last time. And uh, I drove home um, to Abilene, and I got a call the next day, two days later. It was a Monday, so it had to have been a couple of days later. I think that was a Saturday, and then on a Monday, then my yeah, my dad had found her unresponsive, and so uh, and then a, a call later, just uh, just a few minutes after that, that that she you know had passed, and um, so I you know I drove home and. I mean, this was, I don't know how to describe it exactly. I mean, it was surreal. Here I am 20 years old, and I had always, I grew up with my mom being sick. I knew she was going to die. I thought about it all the time, actually, in ways that, again, are not what kids need to sit on the front porch and think about. So I had prepared myself for that, and... um and, and then here it was, you know, this very surreal experience. And I don't know what kind of framework or infrastructure you can have at 20 to really hold the grief of your mother in so many ways. I, I didn't 
grieve. I just sat and planned and listened to people fight and tried to, you know, absorb all of my dad's anxiety. And I really was just actually so angry at any sorrow he felt, which was unfair, but I just resented it so much. So I was pretty shut down in the experience and remember, you know, coordinating some things for her service. And But yeah, I remember, you know, holding her Bible, the one that she gave me to go to camp and we were all there together. And then we went home. And then there's this new chapter of my life that in so many ways actually didn't feel that different. And, you know, at this point, sitting here with you, I've lost both my parents and, you know, we'll talk more about what that has looked like, but it wasn't at the loss of my mother, like my world suddenly changed in this unalterable way. That I'd lost my best friend and my deepest confidant and the person that knew me so well. It's just not the relationship I had had access to with my mom. Um, Partly because that, I couldn't survive what I was experiencing if my heart was very tethered to each of them, you know, if my heart was open. So part of my survival strategy was um, just a a shut-offness, a closeness, a guardedness, which I I don't judge now, but I I can name it. I can be sad about that and also bless um, what was needed at the time. Were you able to— was that shut-offness affecting your friendships I'm with sure your was, yeah, you know, like, lifelong friends? Yeah, my ability to connect and let my guard down and really be known. Oh, of course it was. You yeah. know, like they, those were better and healthier, uh-huh. you know, relationships. And they were, gosh, they were right by my side through all of it yeah. and loved me through letting some of those walls come down. But yeah, that definitely, I've carried that into every relationship. It's how I knew how to be in relationships. Yeah. So I had to unlearn and relearn some new ways. Okay. Come back to school then. Mm-hmm. Um, we're junior Yeah. now. Yeah. Almost done. Get into mm-hmm. a new normal. Yeah. Uh, I guess is the best way to put it, a new normal. And the, the weight of dad now on his own, still yeah. kind of plaguing your thought, plaguing mm-hmm. your heart. Still trying to find money every semester, yeah. still trying to— Well, here is the cool thing that happened that year, because that, because that had been the case. Um, I had a family member on my mom's side pass away, and, um, and, and she had money to leave in an inheritance form. And just because of how the things were structured, it came to me in a way that every loan that I had taken out up to that point uh, was able to— satisfy and pay. And I mean, I, I graduated with no student loan debt That's amazing. and a clean college bill. I mean, it really is miraculous. So that, you know, that did happen that next year, I think in the spring. And um, yeah, so I, you know, I was just trying to navigate life. And by the time you reach your junior year in college, you really are emerging into adulthood yeah. in many ways and starting to think about what was next. And yeah, I was, I was, obviously carrying all of this grief and trying to understand what to do, how to, you know, make sense of it. And it's not common for you to lose a parent in college. And so that was, it was a story for others to certainly bear witness to, but it was a part of their world as well to walk with me through grief. You know, you got to do that in a particular way. Some others that were just so kind to me, some mothers in the faith, like Janine Reese. Um, gosh, what a, what a gift she was in, you know, in all of that. 
And yeah, I mean, you just keep going and start to think about how life on the other side of this beautiful four years is going to look and be. And, uh, you know, I was I was curious what my finance degree was going to lead me to do. I loved getting that degree, but I didn't want to go into finance. And I was feeling these pulls toward ministry and I was working for some, non- some nonprofits in town and I've been serving with kids at the church and loving that and yeah, I was really just in a more curious, um, what's life going to be like? But yeah, the relationship with my dad and the care for my dad was an ongoing thing. And really it shifted and, and you know, and at that point to navigating just the relational hardship as I was growing and understanding more of who I was, more of what was true in the Lord, my standards and expectations for health were shifting too. Yeah. So entering into some, you know, this old dance, this unhealth, my tolerance and patience for it was decreasing, yeah. which was good. But navigating it became harder because of that. So, yeah, that was definitely, you know, operating in the background and foreground sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Graduate, move to Dallas. Yeah. And then let's let's pick up a little bit of that. Yeah, there. definitely. Yeah. So I graduate, <laughs> which was awful. I hated that day, honestly. I mean Oh, I hate that. I, I think it's the first time I've heard you say that. Yeah. I mean, it was I I did not want college to end. Yeah. I loved it. Oh, I believe that about you. <laughs> I loved it. I loved the experience. I am uh yeah, I'm a I'm a tried and true. Three chairs for the purple and white. I loved my experience at ACU. I loved my church family. I I just I was experiencing life and health and connection in community. I had not had that before. Yeah. I didn't know how to envision it outside of this time and space. And I think, you know, for those that grow up in scarcity, those that grow up um in in more chaotic environments. It's really hard to narrate forward a predictable pattern of provision. Yeah. <laughs> so when you have it, you hold it and you can hoard it. When you know you're trying to that's that's part of what comes with a scarcity experience and mentality is I have this good thing. I might not ever have a good thing again. So I'm not letting it go, but you don't get to do that, you know, with anything really. Um, It's just, that's not how things work. But I did not know how to end this season and step into all of the unknown of adulthood. And so, yes, that day of graduation, I was a mess. I was just like, life, nothing will ever be good again. How can, how can anything be as good as this? I did not want to, I did not want to say goodbye to my friends that I saw every day, all day. I did not want to leave my church home. I tried to stay in Abilene, honestly. Yeah. I'd made a home there. And God just did not let any of the doors open to do that. And, you know, I'm not a great transitioner, just generally. <laughs> Goodbyes are so hard. And I just, I felt all of it and and did not want to step into what was next because I just didn't know how. And I, I did not have enough, um, you know, muscle memory at that point to have the kind of confidence that maybe I do now. God's going to provide every time there is a need for another place to step. Ah, He's how it's provided. I can look back and see it in a different way now with such gratitude and amazement. So looking forward from where I'm sitting today feels much less scary in the unknown than it did when I'm graduating college. But yeah, I, I, you know, I moved home, which meant I moved home where my dad was and 
That was hard. I did not want that. And you know, you had um, you had taken the the pastorate here. Gosh, I I was a senior, I guess. Uh, it was December my senior year, and I remember visiting the church. And so this was an easy place to land yeah. from a church family perspective. But I just didn't know. It was uh, some friends and I joke. These were like the dark days. I just didn't know what to do. I didn't yeah. know what I wanted to do. I didn't know how to find my way toward that. I also didn't know that the transition out of college is really hard. For everyone. For everyone, for so many. And when I heard that, it made me feel less crazy (laughs) and less weak. Honestly, I just was struggling. You do say goodbye to this beautiful experience. And I know not everyone has a beautiful college experience. I I did. But you, you step into new rhythms, having to find new community as an adult, find a job. All of your expectations are changing for how you relate to people because now you, you're you supposed to be a proper adult yeah, um, and relate to people in that way. And I just floundered a little bit. And, uh, you know, finding, finding a home at the village was such a gift and such an easy place to land and easy place to be fed and connect as slowly as I did. Um, but I, I loved it. And I loved, you know, stepping in and serving and being around. And all the while I was grieving. And yeah. uh, there couldn't have been a more familiar place the village church can compared and connected to what yeah. I had experienced in Abilene. And yet, <laughs> I remember coming on Wednesday nights for prayer. Yep. We didn't have dinner, but there was prayer and I was there and happy to be there in many regards, but I still was like, I just want to be where I was. Yeah. So there was a, you know, there was a, a long process of transitioning and accepting and leaning into this is where you are now. And this is actually really, really good. Yeah. So I do think that's one you know, I think as because I know some of your transitions, I, I think that's been almost a theme uh, of your life is for the Lord to um, not bait you. That's not the right word, mm. but to lead you into that space where you're just going to have to trust Him again yeah. to build something either better or yeah. different for you right. than this place of comfort that's now been established. Gosh, I'd, I feel like that could be a theme <laughs> over your life. Yeah. That in his relentless pursuit of you and love for you, the way that's worked itself out is um, pulling you out of seasons of comfort and healing and and helping you develop that muscle memory mm-hmm. um, of trusting him to build something either new or similar or different based on what he wants to do and accomplish right. in, in his life. And so um, we— we we saw you serving, and we had hired charity to do children yeah. stuff. And man, it was a good day in my office when she came to me and said, "Hey, there's this woman that volunteers. You know her. We'd love to see if she wants to come on uh, and help as uh, an associate or an intern. I don't know what the title was at the time. It's been 20 years. Um, that man, you you came on staff here at TBC." And so talk a little bit about life in that season. Here you are. You are disoriented. You still are. um, God's doing something new. We're not Beltway, and and Beltway was awesome. For those of you who have been, there's a church in Abilene that I trained under, David McQueen, and that elder board and that church, just such a, so much of what the village is finds its root in Beltway. Because that's where I trained. That's where I learned. Mm -hmm. And um, and, and so you, you come on here while the Lord's, now you're in ministry. 
right. while the Lord's doing this work, while dad's down the street, oh while gosh. talk a little bit about this season of the journey. Cause it yeah. was, it was a, it was a wild, one, <clears throat> odd one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, the decision to come on staff was a huge step of faith. It was not something that I had planned for. I really, I didn't know people even wanted to work at churches. <laughs> now I, <laughs> yeah. now I, now I know that's like a yeah. whole thing people aspire to and train for. But I, I didn't really think about that. That's not even my, you know, inclinations toward ministry weren't connected uh, vocationally in aspiration to the local church at that time. I had loved working with kids in college. I loved it a lot, and. Um, but I did never see myself working at a church or working with kids. That just was not in my framework or plan. But there was this opportunity, and through a lot of uh, prayer and, and and significant conversation, I just said yes to a. I don't know what the title was either. I do remember the pay, and it was so low. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it's never for the money. <laughs> well, and I had uh, I had a full time opportunity out of state doing business development for a nonprofit on the table at the same time, and uh, and so I. I yeah, I I made the decision to to be here, and that was the right choice, you know. And um, so I, yeah, I, I was journeying into a ton of unknown, and over the you know the course of those years, so much was happening. I mean, the church was growing. I was learning what does it mean to work at this church and build these ministries, and it was a blast. It was so fun, and 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 I was continuing as we all do to grow in my faith, my understanding, my knowledge of God, and to just grow independent of, yeah, certainly my family, my upbringing. I'm just, I was becoming a young woman, um, yeah. you know, an adult that was independent. And again, as my uh, my health was increasing spiritually, emotionally, relationally, figuring out how to navigate a, search, a situation and circumstance that had been unhealthy and was continuing to be, it was really, really hard. And um it was taking a lot of time and emotional energy. And um, and so, yeah, there was a lot to continue to heal from. And it's like you're trying to heal from the past while you're actively navigating similar circumstances. Yeah. That's really hard to do. And there are people that are doing that right now. There's just sometimes you get to heal on the other side. And sometimes you just are trying to navigate health and life and stop surviving and bracing and reaching for old strategies while you're still having to navigate things that are really hard and tempting and tricky. And, oh, that was my 20s. Yeah. My work in discipleship and in following Christ was navigating this really difficult um, relationship with my dad and trying to think about, I mean, I was imposing, honestly, all of my like learning and growth and healing. I was imposing those expectations on him yeah. that he needed to be this particular way. And I mean, there was, there was, there was immaturity and short-sightedness because I was in my twenties. And yeah. when you're in your twenties, you are immature and short-sighted. That's all you can be in your twenties. For those of you out there in your twenties, it's okay. That's yeah. just where you're supposed to be. Yeah. Just know you're there. So yes, I mean, significant things that were happening in those years. Um, I you know, I stepped into counseling for the first time, and I walked through steps. You know, here, and both of those were were significant 
in, in different ways. They, they held hands so beautifully. And honestly, Matt, in my, you know, my adulthood, I was starting to see and be able to name things that I experienced in just very different ways. That continues to be true. And so the amount of support and healing that was needed to tell my story and be seen in my story, it, it was pretty significant. And we all need help and healing. And I advocate for counseling, really anything under the sun that God would bless toward um, healing and wholeness, like just say thank you for it yeah. <laughs> and receive it, walk in it by faith. But I had experienced really significant trauma and I was I was in the midst of having to continue to walk forward with it unremoved in some ways. And so that was, you know, that was hard, obviously. And I was so grateful for all of the support and presence and the ministry of the church in all of its various capacities that I was receiving even as I was offering it in different, you know, aspects of the life of the church. Yeah, and one of the things that I want to highlight is really about your life in Lincoln is that— in all of this, I always saw you choose Jesus, choose the people of God, turn your face in that direction. So as much as the temptation could be to grow really angry mm. or to grow bitter or to um, give in to the compulsion to hate or to, I always found in you a real beautiful struggle to, I'm going to cling to Jesus. So all these things that you're saying that were there, they were there because you turned towards them. Mm. So I don't I don't want anyone to be listening yeah. and think that like these things just kind of magically appeared for you. Mm. You turned you went to counseling, you signed up for steps, you entered into a very imperfect community of saints who didn't know what they were doing on all these things that you're talking about. And and yet you just kept choosing it. Even as like I man, I know I I, I could I remember failing you when your mom died. Mm -hmm. I just remember I was I had a thousand things going on and didn't circle by and, and but but you just moved towards me. You you didn't and and I think one of the things I hope people get as they listen to the overcomers is that they see in the stories of these men and women we're interviewing, they chose to turn towards Jesus. Mm -hmm. They turned to in it, not not like in it they turned. In it, they moved towards the people of God. In it, they grabbed hold of an imperfect gathering of believers in a local place, and it sustained them. Yeah. And that is, that is that's the grace of God. And again, not to like push away from yes, you do you do choose. There is muscle memory that gets formed in one of two directions: toward God or away from Him, toward His people or away from them. And it is the grace of God that my life has has demonstrated and modeled and followed a pattern of moving towards. May that always be the case. And yet there's so much provision. <laughs> um, it, you know, he's put people in my path to, to move toward. It's like they move toward me and I move toward them. Or I move toward them and they move toward me. And there's... There's just so much gift to see in how God um, cares for his people. Ultimately, he is loving and leading all of us in deep imperfection. And yeah, and it was totally his provision. Mm -hmm. I, I want to give all glory and credit yeah. to him, but but he works through the agency of people. Yes. And, um, and you could have, as those people moved towards you, stiff-armed them mm -hmm. or blamed them mm -hmm. or— twisted their intention or because it was all imperfectly executed yeah like all of it um and and I think the thing I've seen in you continue to see in you is that that kind of questioning nature um, that God put in you however it got there 
um, is something that leads you outside mm. of yourself um, to the feet of Jesus, to his people, to try to orient your life around what is mm. most good and most beautiful, yeah. namely Jesus himself. What was very present to me in that season, I, I feel it less now, but I was so, I just didn't want to be the, you know, the broken girl with the sad life. Yeah. And yet what was on me and around me and what I was just living in, I mean, that wasn't true of me, but uh, to be seen in all of it was hard and unavoidable, even though I tried to avoid that, you know, (laughs) Um, a lot. And so I, I worried that that was just all that people knew about me or saw in me and um, yeah, I, I I remember having a lot of concern and yet not being able to diminish how much help and support and just need I had. Yeah. And where I sit now and I look back now, I have much more rest and peace and compassion and love and gratitude. It is really, it takes a lot to be seen in your story, mm. to be seen in your struggle and we want to we want a way out of shame, and we find lots of paths um, that we think will work to lead us out of shame and into honor, maybe. Or, but ultimately, we hide. Yeah. Um, unless God is the one that brings that honor, bestows it, covers us in that shame, and yet, what is true in the people of God, imperfectly, is is that is the means that God uses to bestow honor. And blessing to be seen in struggle and to not be met with scorn yeah. or rejection, but love and mm-hmm. presence. And there's just not another way to heal than to be ministered to yeah. by God's Spirit and through His people. That's just the normal means of grace that yeah, He's given. That's a great word. And it's hard, it's vulnerable. And He held me still mm. um, and helped me reach. And I, I have so much gratitude. I, I, in some conversations recently, have realized I I thought I was maybe holding some things together better than I was, or I just didn't realize how much people saw. Yeah. And that was probably good at the time. But now, years and years later, I feel honored um, to have been seen and loved so well and not shamed for my weakness, not judged and provided for. And even, um, you know, kind of where the story goes next is for sure needed lots of help, support, healing, navigating this hard, hard, hard relationship and trying to name things in my story appropriately and heal from them and all of that, you know, continue to be true. And, um, and you know, in my relationship with my dad ebbed and flowed. There was a season where um, it was, it, I mean, it was so enmeshed. <laughs> um, and there was just a, a, just a deep measure of, of unhealth. And again, that misplaced responsibility and just this wrestle of, is this compassion? You know, some of that, that push and pull of guilt and wisdom and resentment. And, and I was just working through all of that, needed to step away from that relationship in a more boundaried way. 
for a season, which was extremely hard to do, but necessary. Um, And that created the space of preparation for when, um, as his health started to fail more significantly, there really wasn't an option for space. I had to be present and I wanted to be as, as hard as it was. But yes, I mean, his, he was older in years and, um, and his health started to fail and I needed to care for him more particularly. And that was a, a sacred space and excruciating, really, really difficult number of months. And, um, and yet God had prepared me for it. And part of what he did in the preparation and part of what he did in the difficulty was he forced my hand to not do it by myself. Because I really, for all of the you know struggle that had been seen, and um, I had kept parts of my life pretty boundaried because of the vulnerability of it. And, um, and yeah, there was a lot of shame. And also it's like, my father was his own person and he he did not want help or connection um, to this community that I was experiencing um, for his own reasons. And yet as things were kind of just coming to a, a point of climax, um, there were some dear brothers and sisters that just got catapulted into that space with me and the amount of relief I felt to not bear it. Not even that they had responsibility with me, they just had presence. Yeah. And that was, it was like light flooding into darkness. It was amazing. And it was a gift of grace to my dad, certainly, to have connection with other faithful Christians who were kind and kind to him, um, which which was wonderful. And then the story kind of turns uh, to the, the, the point of his passing. That was so different than losing my mom um, in so many ways, circumstantially, obviously, and um, and where I was. The amount of the presence of the people of God in the midst of the days, um, you know, that he was in the hospital and right after is, I think back on those days and my faith is so strengthened. It's like to this day, a milestone Ebenezer season in my in my world. And I was thinking about it in preparation, you know, for sitting here with you. And when I was a kid, the death of my parents was what I feared the most. And I, you know, they, they were older and my mom wasn't well. So I thought about it all the time. I thought I would sit on our front porch and I would like strategize around who who should die first financially? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, My things gosh. that it's like, I, I wish I didn't think about that as a kid. Uh, kids aren't supposed to think about that, but I just knew too much about our family. Yeah. I knew who made how much money. I knew who paid what bills. And I was like, do the math. And it wasn't even, I mean, there's emotion behind it, but it was so like, it was how and who can I take care of? And that was, I mean, those are the things I was thinking about in childhood. So... I lose my mom at 20, and then here I am, 28, um, and I'm about to lose my dad. I got a call from my dad, and he was um, he was frantic, understandably, because he couldn't he couldn't move his left side. He couldn't get out of bed, so got in the car, started moving into that direction. I got another call from him, and his speech was slurred and. Um, 
in my mind, I'm like, okay, he's having a stroke. Clearly, we call an ambulance. They get there before we do. And I, you know, I arrive, they are carrying my father into the ambulance and it had to break down the door. And it's just like, then it starts spinning. And I, I, I don't remember all that happened. I remember going to one hospital and then they transitioned him to another. I remember sitting with the ER doctor and hearing, you know, there's a mass and a brain bleed. And that's why it's presented as a stroke. And there's really, there's nothing that we can do. I don't know who made what phone call to who, but I just know people started to come. Yeah. So many people. And then we drive to Fort Worth and follow the ambulance. And the waiting room is filled with people. I remember that night. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, it. it is a night I remember, but it's a night given to other people to remember. Yeah. And, and I remember going back and I remember sitting with you and asking the questions that I had asked since <laughs> I was 18. Yeah. So concerned about whether or not my dad knew the Lord and what does this mean and what do I do? And, and I mean, that was the beginning of five days, I guess. It was a Friday night of just sitting and crying and being in that, what is this moment reality and knowing my, I'm just watching my father die. Thing that I thought about this man that for all of the hard things, and there were many hard things, there weren't only hard things. Mm -hmm. You know, I was loved by my dad and I loved my dad, and he shaped so much of who I am. And maybe he's the reason I asked so many questions, you know. <laughs> and, and it's a confusing thing. It's confusing and complicated to care for someone who's been a source of harm, who you love and fear. And it is complicated to sit and watch this man-made in God's image who himself had experienced so much harm, who needed so much more compassion than he had experienced. Um, but God provided for him in those days. We were in this incredible, like brand new palliative care unit with extremely kind nurses and doctors. And I was never by myself. I was never alone. The number of people who just sat and waited and I mean, for hours and hours who sat with me or who didn't, you know, they were just there. My best friends drove through the night to be with me. And it was such tangible provision of God's mercy. And every moment where a decision needed to be made that was very big, bigger than me, the provision was there. Yeah. It was excruciatingly sad, obviously, so many tears and sleepless nights, but so much mercy so much provision, and I felt the presence of God. I still feel the presence of God thinking yeah. about um, those days. And yeah, I mean, my dad passed on a Tuesday at noon, and I don't think he was in pain. And um, he passed in peace. And I remember driving home, and I was by myself in the car, which I chose. And I remember feeling so numb. And watching people in cars on the freeway who were just having their normal life, yeah. and some of them were smiling, and I was so pissed. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, don't you have any idea what's just happened? Yeah. You have no idea. How can you be smiling? How can you be happy? Which I think is a very normal thing. Right. But uh, yeah, and, and I remember getting home and... Um, 
people were there and just was ministered to. And um, I remember my friend Andy just coming and scooping me up and saying, I'm going to be, I'm going to be here in six months when it's still hard. Come on. And um, yeah. And, and those days of making decisions and making plans, they were some of the sweetest in my faith, honestly, because God provided and God provided through his people. And um, it was amazing. I mean, the experience of the church family as my family was an unbelievable kindness. Yeah. And so we're, has it been 12 years since he died? 13, 13. we 14 in September. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know why I was thinking 11 or 12. No. Man, time. Time. It's moving. So how does the loss of your father, mm-hmm. now you, you you have no biological family, certainly have this robust family of faith. Mm-hmm. Mom and dad, yeah. you, you have biological family, yeah. not mom and dad. You, you've got this robust kind of family of faith here at TBC and even broader than the village church. And talk about that transition into kind of a new normal. I mean, your whole life you've been carrying this weight. Right. Your whole life you're right. you're, you're you're worrying and now like nature abhors a vacuum. Mm-hmm. The spirit abhors a vacuum. So you have these things pulled out that is they're, they're certainly going to expose some things and churn up things and things are going to replace that and yeah. talk a little bit about that transition from my so much energy and I would say maybe even spiritual vitality, Mm. going towards concern for my dad, care for my dad, trying to set healthy boundaries Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. if I don't, then this gets in a real bad place quick. So that's just a ton of energy. And then from there, now dad's gone. It's Ann Lincoln and her good friends and people who love her and people she loves back. And Andy, who's like six months from now, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be here and was. Um, talk, Talk a little bit about what's going on internally, maybe even in your relationship with the Lord Yeah, th- that next few years after yeah. dad passes and that kind of lifts and and now maybe real work begins or yeah. harder work begins mm-hmm. or I don't know how you would, you would say it. The months right after were some of the sweetest with the Lord. I felt his nearness. I felt confident in the care of God's people. And that was obviously... Um, that's a nice thing to feel secure in. And, you know, what came just a few months after that was, uh, you know, you got sick. Oh, that's right. That's Same nine. year. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, what's so interesting, I, I mean, I have thought about this, um, you know, before I, I kind of continue with that direction, what people around me were saying in those months of just ministry and presence was just, it was an affirmation of what you already acknowledged, that there had been all of this weight that was lifted. And several people commented to me that they experienced me sort of this, um, ironically, that as both of my parents biologically had passed, this spirit of adoption, my confidence in my place in God's family, in His care for me as Father— that it's like I came into a clearing, yeah. that that was so much more present. I was so much more at rest, which which makes sense in some ways, but is this beautiful irony. Yeah. 
And I think that what makes sense connected to that as, you know, as beautiful as the church's family is, the church is my family for all intents and purposes. I mean, I have a sister and nieces and a brother-in-law, and I love them so much. And um, that that is the extent of my biological family and connection. And so really, in terms of day-to-day life, my spiritual family has been my family, yeah. my community. And that's—I I love that. I, I think that is a good way to move through the world as a Christian, even with a robust biological family, whether they're believers or not. But you know what filled that vacuum was then, you know, some of that concern that needed to get, continue to get sifted out in terms of really what responsibility do you need to hold? Um, You know, that started to come out in in the place of new, uh, you know, or ongoing familial expression. So, I, you know, that some of that angst and places that I needed to continue to heal and walk on level ground, um, you know, that was the context then where that sanctification, um, you know, was taking place. But just personally, you know, my my experience of grief really was, I, I think it was pretty healthy yeah. and and really beautiful um, in the sense of I, I felt this strong sense of God's presence. And there was a lot of ministry just to help me heal and grow and be established in strength. And it was really okay with everybody that I wasn't at full strength. Yeah. And there wasn't an expectation that I was supposed to be further in my journey than I was. And I was so glad for that. And it was just, I mean, it's a marker of a lot of things that I leaned into not having it all together. Yeah, I leaned into feeling as small as I was. I just was small. And I think there was probably a lot more room in my life to be smaller than I gave myself for. I don't know that people had this expectation I needed to be a particular thing or strong in particular ways or big in particular ways or have it together in particular ways. And yet I, I needed to fill that space for some reason. And that'll, that continues to be part of my road, I'm sure. And so I received a lot of care in those days. And then, yeah, I mean, Thanksgiving happened and, um, you know, this this spiritual family, this community and you being such a significant part of that personally, um, but then also as as the one who's loving and leading us, that, uh, that was a hard season, yeah. you know, that, that shook some things in a way that um, just because of the relationship being so different, it hit my heart in a way different way. Yeah. So there was an introduction of new grief and new uncertainty. But I was grieving and uncertain together with you yeah. all. And that was definitely different. But, you know, that that season, certainly for you, for your family, but for the life of the church, it, it shifted some it's things. It's a significant turning point. Um, and, and understandably so, appropriately so. And um, and so, so much of my, my life, my work, my community— was taking place within this same group of people. And so the shape of the church was, um, understandably, my my shape was following along with that in some regard, even though not, you know, step-by-step step, um, taking the exact same shape. But there was definitely movement, you know, in that way. And so my own work and life and growth, um, yeah, it was it was continuing. And then my own wrestles uh, started to take shape in different ways. And some of that was continuing to make peace with my story. Now, truly, as some of those storms um, had ceased. 
So there was new space to feel, new space to see, new space, um, yeah, to to need to need help and to see how my my responses, again, some of those like strategies, coping mechanisms, my beliefs um, that had been shaped, how those were coming to bear now in the relationships and the context that I was in while I'm not enduring it in an ongoing way and having to, yeah, take account for that, be responsible for that. And that's an important part of, you know, understanding our story and healing is not only the courage and the safety to tell the truth about what has happened, what we've experienced, but it is about looking at then how has this shaped me and how am I living out of this story that I have to take responsibility for in repentance, in humility, and in change. Yeah. And that is a long and hard process. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things I want to highlight, because I don't know how people are listening right now, all of this is going on while you have a full-time job at this church that's growing like bananas, especially with young kids. So you're writing curriculum. You're pointing little hearts and minds towards the nature and character of God. You. It's not like all of this is taking place because life is on pause. Right. It's happening right in the thick of the madness that's being on staff at the village, (laughs) which is, you know, 900 miles an hour with your hair on on fire. Mm -hmm. So I I just want to put it in all this work in its context, like this this loss, this family, this grief, this how do I replace this or what is this? This is all going on while life is actually happening. Yeah. And there, you know, there are working, working at the Village Church can feel like that. It can feel like many Wonderful things, you know. Sure. Oh, absolutely. And yet, you know, as as the as the church was growing, it was changing. Things were changing internally from a staff perspective. My experience of that, my ability to experience that, uh, you know, created its own set of uh, challenges and struggles and opportunities for all of us to bear with each other. It, it, life just doesn't stop. That's all. All That's that it. to say, um, life does not stop. Things are moving fast, and things are growing, and. And no matter what hardship you're facing or seeking to endure or able to overcome, life does continue. There continues to be struggle. There continues to be challenge, temptation, loss, hardship. And you're not maybe fully healed from the first thing or 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 from the fifth thing, you know? And (laughs) yet you keep encountering and being encountered by things that are unexpected and unchosen that hit on those old things, that hit on those places not yet healed. And we don't always find, we're not always our best selves in those moments. And um, it's hard in the moment. It's hard to look back. It's hard on how it, you know, impacts others. And it does. It just does. That's that's a that's a part of being connected into a community yeah. and being seen. Is you're you're seen. That's it. And you affect others, and they affect you. And um, and that's why the scriptures are quite clear that the call is to love and and bear with each other as we you know bump up against bruised places. Yeah. So, like one of my favorite things about the podcast is is really thinking about, maybe I do this while I write sermons too, is thinking about like there's some man or woman right now and they're like they're in their car mm-hmm. or they're running on a treadmill or they're, I don't know, sitting on a dock looking out at a lake and like the things that you're talking about, they're, some people are listening to this and they're like, oh yeah, that's, I can see the Lord's hand there. Other people are listening to it 
and you're sharing their stories or they find in them this weird kind of like you're touching one of their bruises um, as you tell your own story. I think this is how the glory of God is revealed in the weaponization of what the enemy meant to destroy us. Yeah. And and so they're, they're feeling, if, if you, and here's what's great, like you, you have their ear right now. Like they're in their car. They're not going anywhere. They're like, if you could speak to someone right now who's had this kind of lifelong kind of wrestle with their roots, wrestle with um, how to stay, how to keep getting up, keep hanging in there, keep grabbing hold of Jesus, even as this thing lingers and continues to shape in ways that are both beautiful and difficult. Anything you would say to them just as we start to wrap up our time Mm, together? Yeah. Well, I think the primary thing I want to say is I'm so sorry. And um, I... I have uh, faces and names that are coming to mind, you know, whether they're on a dock or in their car, I don't know, but um, that's true. There really are hard circumstances that are not one time, um, not to diminish any suffering or hardship, but they're, and every story is different, but moving through a particular, you know, crisis moment or significant loss versus ongoing every day, the, the effect of cumulative um, suffering, trauma, hardship, affliction, abuse, um, where you don't know that there's going to, you can't actually see an end. Yeah. Um, that is hard. How do I keep going in this day, in this moment? I remember those days. I, I can sit here and tell this story now, seemingly on the other side of some things. Yeah. And um, and see blue sky and sunshine and have perspective on the goodness and grace of God. And I'm so glad for that. And I think that what I would want to say by way of hope and um, a voice from the other side of some things is there is an other side to this. That's right. And God's promises are real. And so is your pain. And acknowledging that and telling the truth about that does not dishonor him. Yeah. Being seen in that does not dishonor him. And he will not fail. He does not fail us. He does not let us fall. He's got us. I mean, we might feel that experience of free fall, but we cannot be taken from his hand. We cannot be separated from the love of God that is for us in Christ. So I think my word of encouragement would be hold fast to all the things the scriptures tell us to hold fast to. You are not alone in your suffering. Uh, God sees you. He is with you. He is for you. Christ knows. And if you are a Christian, you are bound to him. He has united himself to you. You are united to him. You are indwelled by the spirit. And that cannot change. He has got you. And if every day is agony, He has got you. He is with you. And there is an other side to this. Even if that other side we don't see until He comes (laughs) or our days end. And uh, But there is an anchor point of hope in Christ. And He knows suffering more than any of us can or will. And He is a sympathetic high priest um, for a reason. And he does not look on our weaknesses and despise them. He just doesn't. He doesn't despise our doubt. He doesn't despise our our weakness. He covers us. So hold fast, take heart. And the scriptures do give us confidence that even if 
the clouds don't break, we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's there. So may he give you eyes to see. Yeah. Amen. Thank you so much, Ann Lincoln. Always good to reconnect and mm-hmm. to be reminded of God's goodness yeah. and grace. And thank you for tuning in to this uh, episode of The Overcomers. Uh, I think Ann Lincoln's uh, wrapped it up beautifully. He sees you. He knows you. Keep clinging to him. Don't shrink your heart. Trust his goodness and grace. It will break through. God bless. Man, I turned 50 this June. I've been following Jesus for 30 years. I've been pastoring for close to 25. And I I feel as committed as ever to the cause of Christ in this day and you being equipped and empowered to follow him as an overcomer in this moment of history that God's put us in. And and so one of the things that I've done uh, moving into the second season of my life is I created the website, pastormattchandler.com. There's all sorts of resources there. There's a monthly newsletter for those who are in ministry uh, and then those who are just following Jesus uh, day in and day out as as a lay person. And then, uh, man, I, I, I wrote the book, The Overcomers, as kind of a, uh, just kind of a push of like, we can do this in this moment. We can love and with the compassion of Christ, push back darkness and see order established in the chaos of our day. In fact, it's what God wants to accomplish in and through us in this moment of history. And so uh, head to pastormattchandler.com. You can find those resources there. Sign up for that newsletter. You can even buy the book, The Overcomers, right now. If you haven't had a chance to read it just yet, I think it will encourage your soul.